You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Perch Pod. I'm Jacob Shapiro. As usual, I am your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. If you have not checked us out at perchperspectives.com or signed up for our free twice-a-week newsletter, we highly encourage you to do so. Um, it's free. All you have to do is give us our, your email address. Or if you want to just not give us your email address, just go to the website. It's there in blog format for you to read. Our guest for this episode canceled at the last second. Um, so we're really, really super thankful for Xander Snyder, who is also the vice president of analysis at Perch Perspective and also has his own podcast, Reconsider. Uh, highly encourage you all to check it out. And this will be posted on Reconsider as well. Uh, Xander and I went to Cornell University together. We worked together at Geopolitical Futures, and we've embarked on this perch journey together. So thanks again, Xander, for coming to us in our hour of need. Otherwise, brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. A reminder, if you have any comments about the podcast or if you want to get in touch and hear more about what Perch Perspectives can do for you or for your business, email us at info at perchperspectives.com. We've had an uptick actually in people writing in and I've been answering and so far I've got enough bandwidth to do so. Even when we don't answer, I promise that we read everything. So thanks so much. Take good care. Please, for the love of all that's good and holy, wear your masks and we'll see you out there. All right, the man, the myth, the legend, Xander, what is on the top of your mind right now? I mean, honestly, I've been focusing a lot on uh, COVID data. I did a, a recent sort of deep dive on a lot of the, the different risks that aren't being covered as much sort of in headline news. A lot of the, a lot of the um, uh, articles have focused on CFR, the case fatality rate, and I kind of did a dig into hospitalization rates by age and sort of how likely you are to be hospitalized or die of COVID compared to the flu. And just, it, it's a lot of data that's out there and available that hasn't been as widely circulated. So I've, I've been focusing a lot on, on that. And then of course, the absolutely dismal GDP figures that came out earlier this week and, you know, what that means for the U S economy or the global economy. And, um, all, all of that good stuff. All right. Well, let's let's start with the COVID things, and then we can get into um, the general economic figures because they are bad. But I, I also question the extent to which we should overreact to just a single quarter's data. But we can get into that in a little bit. Um, I actually, it's funny you mentioned COVID because I was just I had just discovered this COVIDExitStrategy.org website, and I was just researching them before we came on because they posted this infographic that basically showed every single state in the union. Uh, has an uncontrolled spread right now, according to their sort of figure. So when, when you're looking at the COVID data, what's the thing, what's the one thing you think listeners need to know that perhaps they don't know, or that perhaps is not being underlined enough in our media sources? Yeah, think beyond the death rate would be where I'd start, because I think the death rate, a focus exclusively on the death rate actually um, kind of clouds a, a lot of the detail in the data. Um, and the, the genesis for a lot of this research that I did was a conversation that I recently had uh, with a friend of mine whose wife is a nurse at a local hospital. And uh, she had mentioned that of the recent wave, as compared to, you know, in, in April and May, something like, and she was eyeballing, 25% of uh, people admitted for severe COVID cases at her hospital were between the ages of 20 and 40. And that kind of seemed shocking to me. Um, just because we know that older folks on average tend to be more susceptible to it. And as it turns out, uh, she was right. About 20% of all 
COVID-related hospitalizations have been for people between the ages 20 and 40. Um, and some of the risks that uh, a company being hospitalized can range from, you know, a traumatic experience. You're stuck there alone without any family and friends surrounded by people who are dying and healthcare workers trying to help people to, you know, potentially permanent long-term physical damage of the pulmonary system, the cardiac system, uh, potentially neurological disorders. Um, and all of the chances of, you know, having to deal with those long-term risks go up when you're hospitalized. I'm not exactly sure what uh, the figure there is, but anecdotally, uh, my friend whose wife's a nurse said that many people who end up on ventilators uh, end up, you know, leaving the hospital with some sort of persisting damage um, and, uh, you know, with the chance that that becomes something permanent. So the takeaway in my mind would be think about the risk of hospitalization and not of dying because being hospitalized for COVID is, is a situation that you want to avoid. Yeah. This hits home, especially close for me. Cause I have a cousin who, uh, was living in New York and was diagnosed with COVID in March. And she has tested now negative for, for active COVID multiple times, but she is still really struggling. Um, with getting back on her feet and and getting back into the regular swing of things, and I won't mention her name here for for her own privacy, but you know, thoughts and well wishes beaming out with her. But just to say that this has gotten a little bit personal for me in that realm too. Xander, do, do you have an idea of why? Is it just that we're more aware, so more folks are checking themselves into hospitals because they're scared about it? Um, is is there some kind of mutation that's happening that is making the virus more severe? Or do we really not just, do we just not know? Is it just kind of a, this is a leading indicator for something and we don't quite understand yet because there's so much we still don't understand about this virus. Are you asking why the hospitalization rate for 20 to 40 year olds has been high? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why is that? Why do you think that's increasing or is there just no clear reason right now? It's been increasing and the, the best I can tell, it's really closely tied to lax reopening measures and whether that those are you know, institutionalized at a state or local level, or whether it's just people making their own personal decisions. It really seemed that at the end of May, starting the beginning of June, um, people started to, you know, uh, act as if the worst of the pandemic was over and frequent bars again and go and have house parties. I mean, I hear, I not anymore, but it, throughout all of June, I heard house parties in my neighborhood, every, like every other night, I could hear, just hear them in the backyard. And, um, I guess unsurprisingly, you know, that's that is the situation in which COVID spreads. Um, of course, there were all the protests that were going on around the country, and there is some uh, reasonable discussion, reasonable debate about how much COVID spread in the protests that you know people were taking appropriate measures and it was outside, et cetera, et cetera. And some research indicates that you know maybe those weren't super spreader events. But the flip side to that is, I mean, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that. COVID doesn't spread in masses of people just because that's usually what contagious pathogens do. So uh, I think it's just people being a little bit more lax. Yeah, I can, at I can attest to that. I mean, here in New Orleans right now, I, I go for a nightly bike ride or walk, and I usually go later in the evening just because I've been working so hard lately. But um, I went a little earlier uh, this week and went by the park and, you know, just, just people playing Little League Baseball or whatever it was. And families out there watching like everything was normal. It, it was kind of disconcerting. Xander, did you, did you focus only on domestic figures or did you, did you compare them in any sense to international figures? Cause I know that other countries have done a lot better with COVID, but also as we start to look around, I mean, 
Vietnam had had local transmission for the first time in 100 days recently. I know that numbers are beginning to tick up in kind of an uncomfortable way in places like France and, and other countries. So d- did you compare it all to other places? Is the United States really kind of an outlier in your view, or did you really just focus in on that domestic data? I just focus on the domestic data. It'd be a great thing to do next, honestly. Um, the the other perspective I did take was comparing risk of COVID to the flu because that's a narrative that you know has percolated quite a bit in the last couple of months. It's like, oh, it's just a bad case of the flu, um, or it, you know, it's not the flu, depending on what your perspective is. And uh, one of the more interesting things that I I found um, that really isn't isn't a story getting told anywhere else is the risk posed to people between ages fifty and sixty four, you know, because. They're they're not as likely to die from COVID as people who are older, like the 70 to 84 age group. But if you look at the risk of hospitalization for the flu versus COVID, as well as the risk of death for the flu versus COVID, it's much, 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 much higher for that age group. Um, People between ages 50 and 64 are over 12 and a half times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID than they are for, um, this was the 2017 to 2018 influenza season that I, I picked for comparison because it was a particularly severe year of the flu. And that same age group is over 50 times more likely to die from COVID than the, the severe version of the flu. So that's that's a story not getting particularly told because, you know, I wouldn't say 50 to 60 year old, 64 year olds are seniors. They're kind of like, you know, late middle ages and um, it is an outsized risk from COVID that I just kind of find interesting, although clearly not good. Yeah. Xander, when, when we launched Perch Perspectives, you were kind of the driving force behind one of the special reports that we issued, which was about specifically about COVID-19. Has, has any of your recent research uh, sort of changed things that you thought about in that piece that got published in April? is Are things sort of falling into place and kind of what you expected, but are small changes? How does how how what you've learned recently affect what you already knew about COVID going into this, this dive into the statistics that you just did? Sure. Um, I think on the one hand, we're certainly seeing the acceleration of um, you know supply chains being um, regionalized a lot more. And that's become a national security issue with with 5G and, you know, everything going on with uh, China and Germany and the U.S. withdrawing troops and wanting, you know, non-essential uh, parts of the 5G infrastructure can contain stuff from Huawei. So I certainly think we've seen, seen an acceleration of that trend. Um, I anticipated that we would see um, a lot more dissent in China um, as a result of the poor initial handling of the CPC of COVID. Haven't seen that yet. Um, so that might just be because, you know, the long-term political, the, the political risks that the CPC has to face are truly long-term, um, albeit constant, or it might just be that they've really done a great job of suppressing any, you know, possible dissent and, you know, uh, clearly there's what's going on in Xinjiang, but I feel like that's a whole different issue. So that's one trend that I anticipated that has accelerated another that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, the, the China question is is interesting. I think I think you're right to point to the fact that China's been able to get on top of this as other nations have really struggled, especially the United States. Um, I also think there's kind of a rally around the flag effect, especially with how the United States has gone after China here in recent months. If you look at sort of Chinese social media, for instance, right after the United States closed the consulate pretty suddenly in Houston, um, you would have thought the world ended. 
I saw one person, I can't remember who they were, so I apologize for not being able to attribute it to them. But I saw one person who was saying that Chinese social media was almost the equivalent of what people were saying um, when there was that accidental bombing. Uh, it was, I think it was the Chinese embassy in Serbia or consulate, some kind of NATO accidentally bombed a Chinese embassy or consulate sometime around there. And that was a huge disruptor in, in sort of US-China ties at the time. Um, so I, I just think in general, there is something to the fact that China sort of feels besieged. It feels Huawei is being treated unfairly. It feels it's being treated unfairly. And I think um, that, that's sort of the interesting flip side of all the the political forces in the United States that want to be tough on China, the tougher you are on China, the more you you rally Chinese people around the Chinese government, even with all of its per, imperfections. I think we've also seen this, and you've looked at this very closely um, in Iran, where the maximum pressure campaign on Iran, yes, it creates some of the instability and some of the political disillusionment that you want, but it also creates this unexpected effect of Iranians who just don't like being pushed around. <laughs> and then that doesn't actually yield the political result that the United States wants in the end. Yeah, it really is a Gordian knot. And I think to understand the true uh, intricacies of the challenge, uh, you have to go back so far in history. I mean, at least, you know, 200 years, right? And I, I actually revisited a piece that you wrote um, I, I revisited it recently. I think you wrote it about two years ago. It's called The Third Opium War. Um, and it's really a fantastic read. Um, I, it's published on Geopolitical Futures, so um, you can probably find a copy there. But yeah, our, no. our, our past life at Geopolitical Futures, now we get to let our hair down and say whatever we want. I'm, I'm letting my hair out because my hair doesn't grow down and I can't get a haircut. So the Jufro is just like massively <laughs> expanding right now. The Jufro is in style. I'm also growing my hair out as long as it's been since uh, I, I was a... Uh, a budding young guitarist in high school. Uh, so I have that, that look going for me right now. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, to really understand why China, you know, China's a diverse place, but as, as a sort of unitary state actor, uh, it feels the way it does. You have to go back to how they were treated sort of in the, uh, you know, high 19th century colonial period. Um, and the U S is heavily involved there. Uh, clearly great Britain is, um, but your comparison to uh, Great Britain's need to sell opium to basically offset their trade imbalance and, and get silver flowing back into their country and the comparisons between that and the, uh, you know, the trade deficit today, I thought were striking and really uh, have shifted the way I think about the issue. But um, it is a challenging one. Uh, and I do think, like in Iran, you get a lot of the rally around the flag effects. I appreciate that. And it's funny. So my, when folks ask me, you know, what is the book I need to read to understand China? Like as if there's one book that you could read to do it. I mean, I always point to Jonathan Spence's The Making of Modern China, or I'm sorry, The Search for Modern China, I think. I forget the exact name. Uh, but if you read the the sort the first and second Opium War episodes in his history, it, it's kind of, it's a, it's a paragraph that get you could very easily skim over. Uh, but the Qing dynasty at that point was beginning to falter. It really wasn't um, in control of China the same way necessarily that the Chinese Communist Party is. Uh, but they were trying to copy the advanced Western naval forces that were attacking them at the time. And they honestly just ran out of time. They were actually doing pretty good copycats of the British ships and the American ships and the French ships that they couldn't really compete with. But they had copies, and if they had had another year or two maybe to work on it, they, that, there might have been a different outcome. 
China today is very, very different. Um, if the Chinese Communist Party was on its downswing, and I really don't think that it is, it would be the earliest a Chinese dynasty, if you will, had ever really collapsed in Chinese history. Um, it seems to me that China is increasing its power in general, and that what has happened between the United States and China in recent months has really solidified this idea in China that they're going to have to be self-sufficient, that they're not going to be able to depend on the United States for key core technologies. Um, I think it'll be a little different in the sense that um, the Qing dynasty was on its last legs and the opium wars really kicked it off. I mean, it, at that point, you just get this unending, inevitable avalanche of things that end with the Qing dynasty falling apart. Um, I don't think that's true of this iteration of China. I think that China really does think that globalization is the long-term trend and to get where they need to go, they have to do what the Qing dynasty wasn't able to do when it was facing those Western powers and it's going to have to beat the West sort of at its own game. And I think that looks like being really, really not, not quite conciliatory because they're not going to capitulate in public on anything, but I think they're actually trying to moderate conflict now because they think if they can just continue with progress for five years, they'll be in a much, much stronger position. I, I also just want to underscore what you said about the fact that I've, I've said this to clients this week and to uh, some other folks this week that I've been talking to, China is not a monolith. <laughs> There's over a billion people in China. Um, Huawei is a Chinese company, but it's also a global global multinational. In some ways, Huawei has more in common with a with a Microsoft or an IBM than it does with um, with the Chinese government itself. If you want to understand what's going on in China, you also have to understand that things there. It's not just as simple as reading the People's Daily and oh, now I know what's going on in China. So much of what is happening in China is up for grabs, is contested. Um, is different at a municipal or even a provincial level. Um, so I, I just, I, I just want to really underscore what you said there, because I think folks forget about that. And that allows them to not just dehumanize the conflict, but also just fundamentally misunderstand what they're seeing. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, all right. Well, with all that really optimistic, rosy stuff out of the way, why don't we dive into the really hopeful things, um, the economic figures that you mentioned? Um, I have a few on the top of my mind, but I'm curious which ones um, jumped out at you the most that were the most stark for you and, and what they told you. Well, the, the headline figure of a 30 plus percent contraction year over year of GDP is is pretty shocking. And clearly there are uh, extenuating circumstances going on right now. And there's good reason to think that, you know, when the pandemic becomes uh, hopefully more controlled, that the economy springs back a little bit more quickly than it has. I mean, frankly, you can argue that on either side. But um, you actually linked to uh, a great article by uh, the economist David McWilliams recently, who's talking about, I think he coined it like the pandeshin or pan something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is like the recession pandemic. And I, I do think that there are going to be unique attributes to this particular recession. But just the headline figure, we haven't seen numbers like that in a long, long time. And the dollar has been getting a lot weaker um, in recent weeks. Uh, and certainly after that uh, news announcement came on Tuesday, the dollar has really fallen and started to consolidate a bit. But um, you know, a big outstanding question in the global COVID pandemic is, whether the United States is seen at any given time as a safe haven for capital, right? And usually when there are international economic crises, even if they're caused by the U.S., capital flows to the U.S. because it's the safe haven, which is, you know, a little ironic, but that's often how it works. Um, 
right now, it seems like there is some doubt. I mean, not a lot. Clearly, clearly the U.S. dollar has like a massive, massive margin as a reserve currency compared to any other that exists. Um, but there is some doubt that the, U- that the U.S. is going to continue to be able to provide uh, an economic safe haven for capital as the COVID pandemic pr- uh, progresses. And uh, we see, frankly, how, how poorly it's being managed here. Yeah, shout out to David McWilliams. He's an Irish economist. I discovered him at a Malden economics conference, I don't know, years ago now. He went on stage and he was supposed to, I can't remember if it was a debate with Neil Ferguson or one just followed the other, but I had always wanted to see Neil Ferguson talk. And then this David McWilliams guy I'd never heard of came on stage and he was, it's very hard to do this. He was, he was simultaneously brilliant and absolutely hilarious. Yeah, um, he had the whole room. It was after lunch, so you know people were in that sort of post-conference nap time sort of thing, and he had the whole room laughing. He's got a great podcast, the David McWilliams podcast, as well. I've been trying to get his attention and trying to get on his podcast because he's brilliant on economics, but I think he could use a little, a little help geopolitically, just a little constructive criticism for you there, David. But Xander, that it's really interesting what you said about, especially the dollar and gold. I can't tell you how many questions I get now about from gold bugs who are saying not only that this proves that they were right for investing in gold, but that this means you should put even more of your money in gold. And I sort of keep telling them, I don't know. I mean, if, if you did invest in gold, this is your moment. Congratulations. But I don't see how, I mean, this is the peak. You don't want to buy into the peak of gold. So w- what are your thoughts about the status of the dollar as a global reserve currency? Do you think it just remains that way because there's no viable alternatives here for the next couple of decades and as the united states increase debt spending and as things begin to change kind of in the global international environment that'll slowly change do you think that it's possible for there to be a more rapid shift than people are maybe anticipating what what's your opinion there i think you can you can respond to that question and with from two angles and i'll come back to the gold one and answer your second question first about just like the general stability of the dollar and it being used as a reserve currency around the world i i absolutely think that a big part of the reason that the dollar is used has to do with, you know, uh, not just economic, but political stability. And something that, you know, you write a lot about at Perch is, um, and actually you just wrote a great, uh, a great piece called Geopolitics 4.0 about how interrelated uh, geopolitical movements are with the different industrial revolutions. And we're now kind of looking at the fourth one here. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a long time, you know, the U.S. has been the strongest country with the most, uh, you know, ste- with a with a steadfast economy and a relatively stable political system compared to what else existed in the second half of the 20th century and, you know, arguably the beginning of the 21st century. And I, I just have to think with uh, at least in part the reaction to COVID and just the failure of the federal government to really uh, show its competency at sort of... Uh, something that it claims to be, you know, uh, have a central role in managing, you know, a national emergency, um, put some doubt there. And if there's any doubt as to the political stability of a country, um, there's clearly going to be some economic doubt further down um, because the the idea of a safe haven stems from both, right? It's it's both the idea that a, a country has a stable economy and a political system that's not too disruptive. Now, um, we definitely know that certain countries want that to change. I I think it was uh, Russia and China had some sort of oil ruble swap exchange set up, and there's some sort of alternative to SWIFT, which is um, 
the uh, kind of existing way that that international banks move money across uh, countries. And there's like an alternative to SWIFT that was uh, being proposed by Iran and Russia and someone else, but I, I forget. And this was all pretty recent. So I, I do think that uh, there is going to be a push as, you know, globally geopolitics becomes more regionalized in the next couple of decades to provide some alternatives to the dollar, especially if the political situation um, here remains as tenuous as it currently is. Now, the thing with gold, I think it's related, but there's also the issue of monetary policy. And whenever gold, I hear gold bugs right now, I, I think about myself uh, 11 years ago because uh, in 2009, I graduated uh, with an economics degree. And I just spent you know, four years learning about um, how, how dangerous it is to, uh, to incur high rates of inflation, right? And that's why the Federal Reserve has a mandate to both ensure full employment and limit inflation. Um, and in 2008, 2009, after the crisis had hit and it became inevitable that some sort of large fiscal stimulus package was going to be launched in conjunction with the quantitative easing. Well, the Fed would go on to do quantitative easing, but the other programs that it was proposing at the time in 2009, um, it looked like the textbook, here we go, hyperinflation uh, scenario. And you hear, heard that from gold bugs everywhere. Um, I was saying that. I was saying it's, it's inevitable that we're going to have hyperinflation, and I was wrong. Um, and that points to a, not a failure of orthodox economics, but a um, a failure in one of the linkages and how macroeconomists uh, understand the economy to work. And it's not one that's been answered yet either. So it's it's interesting to me that we're now back at a point where massive inflation, uh, not inflation, sorry, massive stimulus is needed, uh, both fiscal and Federal Reserve. And you have people saying, ah, watch out for inflation, buy gold as a hedge. Um, it's possible. I don't know. But uh, we were all wrong with that logic last time. And I think we need to keep that in mind if we're thinking about, you know, what the purpose of gold is. Yeah. You mentioned the thing about SWIFT and China and the rubles. And I, I wish I could recall the exact details, but there was something this week that I think for the first time in, I don't know, in a long time, it was something like more than 50% of Russia and China's trade was in the yuan or wasn't in the dollar. I forget. It was something about how just trade between between Russia and China has begun to change. But I, I take your point on economic orthodoxy. It, it always seems like e economic orthodoxy is almost always, um, I don't know, a generation behind the next crisis. It's like the, the ideas get developed in one crisis and you start applying them. But then when you get a new crisis, whether it's like a pandemic recession or any, or any of these other things, um, the thing there, or the metrics that you would have used before or the frameworks that you would have thought about before don't necessarily work. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can't run double blind studies in economics, right? Occasionally you get like the perfect social setup where you, you can get get it set up a little bit more, uh, not quite double blind, but in that general direction. So you're in when you re research in economics is dependent upon, um, you know, things that have happened that are observable. And uh, it, that means that Theories that explain what have happened in the past may not always be prevalent in the future. I, I don't think that means that we should write off <laughs> economics because uh, I, I do think that a lot of people arrive at that conclusion like, oh, economists uh, always you know, miss forecasts, therefore we shouldn't listen to them. I don't think that's the story, but I do think we need to um, think outside of the box a little bit because clearly the orthodox explanations for why we, why we did not see hyperinflation in the last 11 years um, were not accurate. So if, if, 
if if anything, it will lead to a lot of interesting PhD theses in the years to come. <laughs> Speaking of economic orthodoxies that are near and dear to your heart, um, we talked about the United States a little bit. I also saw um, and was was kind of tickled to see that Germany hosted its, I believe it's its largest quarterly GDP decline since it started recording on a quarterly basis since 1970. Um, and it, but the the interesting thing there is that when you look at employment levels in Germany versus the United States, Germany, it's only gone from about 3.8 to 4.2%. United States unemployment is up past 11% and it's, and um, new unemployment claims are beginning to rise. Um, I think one of the positions that you and I struggled the most with in our prior life was this idea that just because Germany is so dependent on exports, as soon as demand collapses, that Germany is going to enter some kind of cataclysmic crisis. And I just, I, I, I'm going to take the advantage of having you on here to just point out to folks that if, if you're thinking about an economy strictly in terms of exports to GDP as a statistic, not going to work for you. You probably shouldn't pick any one statistic to figure out an economy because Germany's doing fine right now compared to a lot of other countries in the world. And especially compared to the United States, it's doing pretty well. Um, Xander, I wonder if if that economics brain of yours, do, do you have an explanation for for why unemployment in the United States has gotten worse and is beginning to trend worse separate from its inability to control COVID? Or do you think that it's merely a reflection of the fact that COVID is spreading and therefore depressing demand? I, I have to think it's primarily COVID because before that hit in early February, late January, unemployment was very low. It was like a historically low levels. And I think we were both probably anticipating some sort of reversal at some point because you know, uh, periods of economic expansion just don't typically last in the U.S. more than 10, 11, 12 years, roughly, right? I mean, sometimes they're a little longer, sometimes they're shorter. So I don't know if something else would have happened, but it seems like the immediate impetus for all the unemployment challenges in the U.S. have to do with uh, COVID. I'm less familiar with uh, the the numbers out of Germany. I just kind of like the headline uh uh, I'm familiar with kind of like the headline figures from the last, you know, week or so. And I, I saw that it's, it saw the largest GDP decline in a long time, why they're doing okay. I mean, you've made this point before. I think it's in part because they've planned, right? And uh, they do have some dry powder left over to, you know, uh, provide for certain types of social services that, um, you know, the U.S. is trying to with these emergency bills to fill the hole with, but certainly we don't have that, uh, that structure, that, that sort of structure built into our society in quite the same way as Germany does. Um, well, and, and Xander uh, in our, in our emergency bills, we're, we're spending billions of dollars on F 35 fighter jets and not on actually helping normal Americans live day to day. It's more, it's apparently more important that, you know, the companies that make the F 35s get bailed out, but that the restaurants and cafe owners and et cetera, don't get bailed out by the federal government. I'm, if you can't tell, I'm a little bitter about it. Yeah, I, at, at the risk of going on a on a bit of a tangent, one of the things that just boggled my mind in in the uh, the first stimulus bill that came out earlier this year was um, the bailout of the airlines. Like it, it, there there were a lot of uh, you know divisive narratives about oh they just you know did these share buybacks and you know now they're asking for a government bailout and it's like oh well we can't have airlines go out of business because then there won't be um, any any you know travel available to people, and that just seems like, as someone who is generally 
a fan of competitive markets. I won't say free market because I think the words, the phrase is loaded at this point, but I'm a fan of competitive markets. I think they tend to benefit consumers. I don't see why we didn't let these inefficient operators go out of business because it's not like the, the planes are going to disappear. They would get bought up by, you know, a private equity company trying to start trying to buy out a new, um, uh, buy out an existing travel business or merge with something else. I mean, the planes would have been there and someone would have found a more efficient way to use the capital than the existing businesses did. But instead, we're essentially using government funds to prop up inefficient businesses, which just doesn't make sense to me as a competitive market advocate. Um, so I'm with you there. Uh, back to COVID, though, I, I do think that Germany prepared a little bit more for this. The uh, U.S. clearly hasn't. And interestingly, even... Um, with the announcement of uh, Germany's GDP contraction recently, the euro only uh, a day or two later started to see a touch of reversals, but it really wasn't substantially impacted by that news. Uh, the dollar was more impacted by the U.S.'s contraction than the euro was by Germany's contraction, which is interesting in light of all the European cooperation we've been seeing recently, or at least signs of coming European cooperation. Yeah, and just to be clear, this move to bail out companies in the United States, it's not new. I mean, if, yeah. if I have, I mean, I could probably um, think of a number of complaints about the Obama administration and ways that it failed to live up to some of its promises. But the way that the Obama administration bailed out companies after the 2008 financial crisis, to me, it sort of begins there. Once, you, once you're not going to hold anyone accountable and you're going to show that the federal government's going to be willing to to bail out whoever needs the bailout, then it just kind of becomes this inevitable thing. To your point about competitive markets, and I mean, this touches on the China point and the Huawei issue and the 5G issue. I mean, the United States has contorted itself at this point into the very thing it's not supposed to be. They're accusing the Chinese government of state support for Huawei. Of course, China gave Huawei state support, but instead of beating them at the game, which is which would mean you know, producing a better product more cheaply or more efficiently, and the United States is going around trying to tell different countries who they should buy from and even offering our tax dollars, federal tax dollars, to rip and replace Huawei equipment. Um, the, the U.S. ambassador of Brazil, for instance, uh, had an interview in a Brazilian paper earlier this week where he said that if Brazil went ahead with Huawei as its 5G provider, there would be consequences for Brazil and that there were funds in the United States to fund uh, Brazil not having Huawei. I don't know about you, Xander, but I don't want to pay for Brazil to 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 have not Huawei equipment. Um, I understand the threats around Huawei and and why there are national security concerns there, but I don't quite understand why the United States government thinks that it's actually doing what's best for the U.S. national security interest in the long run by intervening in that kind of heavy-handed way. To your point, it gets rid of this idea that there is a competitive global market and that whoever is the most innovative, the most creative, the most efficient is going to win out. And it basically substitutes that by saying, no, it's going to be about muscular federal intervention. And the United States is not going to let different companies fail or is not going to let other companies supplant the United States in the global marketplace. Yeah. Here, here I'm going to reference a quote that you say sometimes, which is, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but with 250, you can buy, uh, you can hear my opinion and buy a cup of coffee or something like that. Yeah, with 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 I, I forget what the exact amount, uh, what the exact cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks is, but it's you know with two dollars and fifty cents, um, yeah, you could buy, you can hear my opinion, and buy a cup of coffee. 
Yeah, and and the reason I say that is because to a certain degree, like it doesn't matter what I think about you know U.S. tax dollars going to encourage uh, Brazilian telecom companies to uh, use different vendors, right? Like it's happening, and this is part of the progression of the development of geopolitics that we talk about all the time at Perch, which is we are going to see political or geopolitical, political, whatever you want to call it, competition mattering a lot more than just prices. And this is this is a global trend. We don't exactly know you know, whether they're going to be trading blocks or blocks where capital is more easily moved between uh, different countries or it's based on mutual uh, security interests. We don't really know, but that's kind of the direction that this is going. And that's why you're seeing places like the U.S. instead of, you know, out competing on better technology, because we don't really, we can't compete with Huawei's 5G in a lot of ways, which is why we're relying on like Nokia um, and Samsung to a lesser extent. Um it's why you have things like this happening. Yeah, I think that point is so important for people who aren't necessarily thinking about 5G on a daily basis or who don't know exactly how telecoms gear works or how the whole system works. Uh, you don't need to know how it all works. Although I just discovered Susan Crawford, who's written a bunch of books about this recently, most recently about um, the need for installing better fiber in the United States, but I won't go down that tangent right now. Uh, but you, know, you don't need to know all the specifics about 5G to understand that the real national security threat with 5G, yes, Huawei is one of them, but it's not actually Huawei. The problem with 5G and with telecoms equipment in general is that there are only three companies in the world that produce it at scale now, Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei. Um, Cisco and Samsung are kind of on the, on the side, and you've got these open RAN players that a lot of promise, a lot of potential, but we're talking years away from going to market. The supply chain concern is not Huawei, even though the United States has made it all about Huawei. It's the fact that there's only three. The, yeah. the moment at which a supply chain gets goes from lean to, to brittle is the moment at which there aren't enough players um, to drive the cost down or to drive innovation. And where whether it's a geopolitical conflict or a natural disaster or just a bankruptcy or incompetence, uh, I'm thinking of Intel in that particular statement right now, you know, little small things can take a player away. And when you only have three players on the market, that's a really dangerous situation. And I worry that the United States is not thinking in terms, it is to a certain extent, although it hasn't put nearly enough resources in open RAN if it really thinks that that's the solution. But the United States has gone all out after Huawei and after China without really addressing the fundamental insecurity, which is there's only three of them. And just because Sweden is less threatening to the United States abstractly than China is. If you're trying to solve the long-term supply chain vulnerability, you got to have more than three companies in the ecosystem and you got to have at least one American company that can compete. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, this is a little off topic, but the example that, that's kind of coming to mind is uh, the way you talk about pre-World War One sometimes, um, because in the telecoms today, you have... Uh, this this uh, supply chain structure that is becoming more brittle because there are fewer options. There's less flexibility, and that's essentially what you saw. With I know it's a bit of a stretch, but some of the alliance systems that you had sort of towards the end of the 19th century, as Germany, you know, congealed and became a state, and you know things changed between Austria and Russia. There were just fewer moves. There there are fewer options at hand. So um, I do think that uh, the focus on Huawei strategically is a little bit is a little bit misguided, and that we ultimately need to have alternatives that we can be offering the rest of the world because that's the way we're going to win. We're going to outcompete, which is what the U.S. has historically been good at. 
Yeah, which is really hard in a, in the telecom space because the telecom space is a it's a front loaded capital intensive business. Um, the compare and I got this from Susan Crawford, who I who I just mentioned. Um, you know, compare it to rural electrification or compare it to the railroads. Um, this is something that is definitely profitable, which definitely you you can probably quantify the overall impact to the to the overall economy of what railroads did for the U.S. economy or what electrification did. But because of because of the high capital cost of installing the infrastructure to get there, the companies that actually need to do the installation, it's hard for them to justify the bottom line because the margins are really tight and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's why the United States, even though it was at the cutting edge technology wise of railroads and at the cutting edge technology wise of electricity, it took multiple decades for that to actually emerge in a coherent way. And even when it did, it, it didn't work particularly well. You had Roosevelt had to come in and bust up the railroads and you had FDR have to come in and basically mandate the federal government brought the economic logic that brought rural electrification to around the country. So that that's the sort of case where you can use the power of the federal government, I think, to create that competitive and competitive environment in an industry where it's really hard to get there. Unfortunately, we're, we're not quite there yet. We haven't realized that we need to have a paradigm shift in how we're thinking and think about how to use the federal government to create that idealized competitive environment that we want, rather than using the federal government as a bludgeon against someone like a Huawei. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I can go on about this topic for a while, but there are things that you know you could do. A lot of it has would be get, would be accomplished at the FCC level, and then there's a lot of actually. You talk about federal regulation. Um, there is a lot of momentum in certain aspects of telecom is not so much 5g, but it's providing internet in a way that like the Tennessee Valley authority tried to provide electricity to more rural parts of the country. A lot of uh, municipalities are trying essentially to compete with, um, you know, spectrum and formerly charter and AT&T. And they're kind of getting a lot of pushback from federal, from the federal government. Um, mm -hmm. I forgot the exact name of it, but it was a County in North Carolina that, um, man, they really had to fight back against um, some lobby pressure they got to essentially not create competition, which anyways, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> well, I'll have to have you back on to talk about that. Xander, we're at, we're at 42 minutes and I don't want people to glaze over. Um, is there anything you want to ask me? Any topic that we didn't hit that you want to touch on really briefly, or do you want to send the listeners out on this? Hmm. Let's see. What's the most important thing that happened this week, Jacob? Oh man, uh, I no, I, th I think I have an answer for that. Actually, I, I think the most important thing that happened. I, I think there. Are two, can I give two of them, or do I have to pick one? Two, two is acceptable. Well, no, no. It's like if if I want to, I want to follow the rules. If I have to pick one, sometimes you know that's a cop out. Sometimes you know I'm going to pick one. Um, I, I think, and I guess I, this is cheating a little bit because the story began emerging last week when Intel reported its earnings. Um, but when Intel reported its earnings, it also suggested um, that it was it was behind its projections on the latest generation of microchip technology, and that they were going to have to delay it for a year. And then on Monday slash Tuesday, Taiwanese media was going crazy because they were reporting that there was an agreement between Intel and between um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, as everybody knows it. But there was an agreement for Intel to outsource its microchip production to TSMC. Now, why is that the most important thing that happened this week? It's because Intel 
was really the only U.S. company to double down on maintaining domestic manufacturing capacity in semiconductors in the United States, full stop. Um, North America only has about 12% of, of overall capacity for creating semiconductors. Most of that in the United States comes from Intel. TSMC is a competitor of Intel, or at least it's supposed to be. Uh, the admission that Intel is a generation behind them, even though Intel and the United States in general invented the microchip, was always generations ahead of it, and was going to need to outsource, that's a huge deal. It's a seismic shift in the semiconductor industry. It also tells you that as the United States and China get into this tech cold war, and as the United States wants to use its tech advantages over China, which it has a few of them, if, if you talk about semiconductor manufacturing equipment, so the equipment that you need to create the factories that create semiconductors, the United States is still in the lead. But just on creating the semiconductors themselves, the United States is way behind. Um, and Intel risks really getting to the point where it's not quite equivalent with some of these Chinese chip makers, especially SMIC, but starting to get within the same sort of space. So if you're the United States and you just declared a full-on tech cold war with China and suddenly your semiconductor champion raises the white flag, that's a huge deal. It has such huge implications for the US-China relationship, for 5G, for Taiwan, for South Korea and Japan. You know, Samsung is in this space. Japan's going kind of full in on open RAN with Rakuten and all the stuff that's going on there. I think that's probably, um, probably the most important thing that happened this week from my perspective. Makes sense to me. And the, I would give just kind of a second shout out to India announcing... Um, some export, I don't know if you could call them, call them controls, that they, they, they are mandating some standards for about 371, I guess it's categories or products of categories, where they want them to be made in India. They don't want them to be coming in via imports. Uh, and a lot of folks are reading this as protectionism from the Modi government, and it is to a certain extent, but I think this also, it's that, that dangerous thing that folks do where they see a tariff or they see an export control, and they automatically call it protectionism. All economies protect certain sectors or certain companies. There's there's never been a perfect realization of free trade, much to the chagrin of you know David Ricardo and other folks who think that you know free trade theoretically is probably the thing that gets the world to, to overall prosperity. Um, but I think India is thinking the same way that China is, which is that yet yeah, after we get through this geopolitical period, globalization is going to keep going. When you look at the technology, when you look at the way the global economy works, when you look at the way, I mean, we're all doing Zoom right now, right? Like you're in Los Angeles, I'm in New Orleans. Earlier today, I talked to somebody in China. The day before that, I talked to somebody in Europe. You know, the borders are beginning to break down. And as these things change, probably the world gets more global in the long term, even if it gets more competitive, um, hopefully not too violently in the short term. I think India is playing that game too. It's protectionism now with an idea towards being globally competitive in those sectors that they've sort of idealized strategically in their own minds. Same for China. That's not true of the Trump administration. It might be true of a Biden administration. I think they might go back towards sort of the, the consensus view and embracing free trade and thinking more strategically about this. Um, but I think that I have underestimated in recent years just how radical it was that the Trump administration went all in on America first. There are other countries, other blocks in the world that are being more protectionist, but it's because they are trying to protect certain industries in a globalized world, whereas the United States under the Trump administration has really been conceiving of a world 
where there are separate blocks and where globalization is not a thing. Open question what happens in the end there, but that's, you can hear it in the way I'm rambling and the way I'm not totally coherent. Like I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but the fact that India is doing that, China is doing that, you throw the Intel news in there, the tariffs in there, the trade war, I, there's something there that I haven't quite understood yet. It's that classic uh, question of path dependency, right? What's what's causing what? To what extent mm-hmm. has the U.S., uh, the United States decisions driven other countries to do that more quickly versus would it have already happened? And it's, I know that's a question that you and I have struggled with um, in the past, just philosophically, like how, and frankly, all historians have too, right? Like the big trends in history, were, were they inevitable or have actions by a particular state actor actually encouraged them? Remains to be seen. Remains to be seen, and I'm sure we'll have many more conversations about this soon. Xander, always a pleasure. Um, thanks for thanks for filling in at the last minute. We super appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.